The idea is this. Somebody out there decided amongst like-minded people that the world should go a certain way. And you must believe that just because they may have billions or riches in it, that you can also assert that the world needs to go another way. You're just going to have to create a coalition of people to believe that. And you got to know what they're doing to keep you from allowing your voice to be heard. And that's a tough thing to do. It takes real work to do that. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro. Welcome to season two of Live at the Lortel. We created this podcast to invite artists working off-Broadway to share their current projects. As we start season two, theater is still on pause. But while our stages are silent, the theater is undergoing a reckoning of twin pandemics, the COVID-19 virus and the virus of systemic racism. This season, we're sharing this platform with different co-hosts from the BIPOC community as we roll up our sleeves to talk to artists about creating art during COVID, as well as systemic racism in our community and country. We hope these conversations will help motivate and begin to heal as we discuss these painful issues. Today, my co-host is the recipient for the 2020 Lucille Lortel for Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, my friend, John Andrew Morrison, for his performance in the Pulitzer Prize winning stage musical, A Strange Loop. Welcome, Ty. We're so happy you're here. Thank you. I follow you on Instagram. I've read a lot of interviews and heard a lot of interviews on podcasts and things that you've done. You've been so involved in the community up in Harlem, and I would love for you to talk a little bit about what's been going on with you these past six, seven months and catch us up with how you are. Thank you. So personally, if anyone out there has children, you know, we've been trying to figure out and navigate what the Department of Education is throwing at us. I have three children, one nine, one eleven, one thirteen. We um, are working hard at trying to make sure that the educational requirements are all fulfilled. My wife and I are, are working hard to make sure that however we design the next year for ourselves, that we do it together and being mindful of trying to be supportive to those who actually need more help. On the personal level, that's kind of what's going on, you know, and things are going fine. We mapped out what the next year should look like. And then on a professional level, so, you know, I haven't worked since March. There have been a few auditions here and there. The entire landscape of commercials, like John pointed out, and TV and film has changed dramatically. So I'll be patient and see what comes. And the challenge right now, well, let me let me back up a little bit. I'm really thankful that I actually get a salary from the Classical Theater of Harlem. By no stretch of the imagination does that theater salary sort of, you know, take care of the family. But I know many people that are in tougher positions than I'm in. And my wife is a stay-at-home mom. So we're just being very judicious about every single thing we do, trips we take, how we eat out, how, what we eat. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we've had to think a lot about. Insurance. I usually have my insurance through SAG, and that has doubled. I'm not exaggerating for my family. I'm thinking on multiple levels and integrating them every way that I possibly can. In terms of the art, I'll talk to you about CTH in a second, but I feel like what artists should be doing right now my opinion only, is to be hyper-focused on universal health care. That's what I think we all should be doing. I actually wanted to build a little banner behind me today, which I didn't do, unfortunately, that actually would say universal health care behind me. Because, number one, the idea, the policy idea that one's health care should be tethered to their work does not make sense. The other thing is that it should be a right. I say it is a right. Access to health care. And then... I also 
in terms of running a business. Anybody who has a business and they're paying for their employees' health care, knowing that people no longer have to worry. Actually, freedom from worry is what universal health care actually could give you. And it allows one to be able to sort of engage in an entirely different way. Imagine if you only took a certain job because you needed health insurance, not because you really wanted to take the job. We can go off on a tangent on that. So I'm going to just, I'm going to put a cap on that and then go back to CTH. When the year started out, I usually try to create a mission for the organization for that year. So this year was the Harlem Renaissance. It's the 100th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance, and it also happened to be essentially our 20th year anniversary. What I wanted to do was to take all the things that we've learned about the Harlem Renaissance. Oftentimes, it gets focused on Langston and Zora and a few other folks. What I wanted to do was to highlight names of folks that we may not have heard of, and also not necessarily just talk about the arts, but talk about the critical conversations that they were having back in those days when they created the Crisis Magazine, when they talked about healthcare in the Harlem community, political access, things like that. So I wanted people to see the things that we were doing and the conversations that we were having were absolutely tethered to what was going on a hundred years ago. COVID hits us. I think a lot of folks sort of did COVID plays, COVID readings, things like that. And we did not go that direction. I said, we're going to stay on the path of just us honoring the Harlem Renaissance. And we've done that with the help of my entire team. There's seven of us. Fortunately, we're able to extend the runway for those folks. So we haven't had to furlough anybody and they got to keep their health care. We're going to be good for about nine months. And I actually believe in nine months, we'll have some sort of idea of what you know the future will look like. I feel like the plans that we have set in place are good plans, solid plans, and one that actually adds to the sustainability of the organization, which has been my goal since day one when I took it over. The challenges that are in front of us right now are just making sure that we can stick to the Harlem Renaissance. Carl Cofield is my associate artistic director, and one of the ideas that he had was to use our assets that we have in-house. So I imagine there are a lot of people out there that may be interested in theater, but they may be interested in light design, set design, sound design. So we took folks with whom we've worked with over the past years and said, hey, why don't we have an interview to talk about the steps of the formula, if you will, that got you to being a light designer, set designer, sound designer. We started off actually with me and Carl. So I did a dramatic interpretation of Langston Hughes's poem, The Weary Blues. Carl happens to play the blues harp. So we combined our talents together We had our media team put some images that reflected the Harlem Renaissance. And then we had a conversation about community maintenance. We've done one with Delroy Lindo. We have one planned with Andre Brower. And then people that are behind the scenes or behind the curtain for us, like Tiffany Ray Fisher, that'll be coming out soon. This online content we're putting out there that we hope can last for quite some time because I believe there's plenty of people out there that do want to learn all aspects of theater making and not just necessarily being on stage. We will be interviewing our general manager to talk about the skills that one needs, you know, what accounting classes did they take, things of that nature. We wanted to make sure that we were being of service to folks even in this time. That's amazing. I mean, your mission very much aligns with Live at the Lord Tell's mission, which was so people can have a platform 
to learn about every avenue of the theater. Maybe somebody doesn't want to be an actor or a director, but they want to box office, costume yeah. design. So, I mean, we try to fill the podcast with content so it's open to everybody and people can learn about so many different things, producing, lighting. Your mission for Classic Harlem goes back to, could you tell myself and John in the audience how you kind of took it over and brought it. There was a very big deficit and you really brought it up. Okay, so I'll give you the PG version. The company started in 99. The two gentlemen that started it, the elephant in the room is that they're two white guys that started the Classical Theater of Harlem. Fast forward 10 years, and I think John would agree with me that the reason why CTH ever grew and became sort of a household name in theater circles was on the backs of young, hungry, vulnerable people of color, black people. And that's why the company had its success. 2008, 2009 happened, which was the financial crisis. And then it exposed us financially and it exposed us in terms of our deficit in leadership as well, too. I'll put it that way. Found out we were about 400 grand in debt, spoke to funders at the time. I had funders who told me that because those two guys were gone, what ended up happening is that they resigned. We, we came to an agreement that them being the leaders no longer was tenable. We brought in the Kennedy Center to do a separation agreement, so everything was above board. They both abruptly resigned in the middle of the negotiations, and that's when I found out we were about 400 grand in debt. And then funders that I reached out to, I had funders at the time essentially tell me that because those guys were no longer leading the organization, that CTH won't survive. Like the idea of black leadership to them, though it wasn't said that way, I knew good and well that that was what was being said. I have to admit, some of those funders gave me the fuel, the energy, the drive to basically say, I'm going to show you. Because at the end of the day, the best revenge is success. So I just kind of put my head down. Fortunately, because I actually used to run a small business when I was in college, I used to run a painting company. So I had an interior and exterior house painting company. So I understood payroll and I understood workman's comp. I understood all the elements of, of what it is to sort of run a small business. Those tools helped me with running the Classical Theater of Harlem. Wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. Eight years and change, I had no salary whatsoever. But like what John told you earlier, as an actor, I was able to make a living. So commercially, those commercial dollars came in and I was able to feed my family. Did a little bit of TV and film. I was able to make my living as an actor, but my passion was to make sure that people understood that, you know, black folks without question can sing and dance, but we can make decisions too. I didn't necessarily want us to be the public theater or Lincoln Center, but I wanted to have the same impact of a Lincoln Center or a public theater. And so one of the things I had to do when I took it over was to go and talk to successful leaders, at least say people who were leaders at successful institutions. So I got to talk to Joe Dally and I talked to Oscar and a few other folks. I know uh, Lou Bellamy and all these folks. And my main question was this, what doesn't work? You know, I can see all the, the glory and stuff, you know, the big buildings and all that other stuff, but tell me what doesn't work. And I got that information from them, employed it, deployed it, you know, with Classical Theater of Harlem, and, and small steps had to be taken. Strange things, you know, if I could give someone the formula, I, I, it's, it, it would be an odd one to, to try to replicate. But, you know, I just showed up. That's kind of the, what I, how I put it. I showed up. So there were some people who were like, you know, Ty, there's a gala going on. You want to be my date at the gala? You know, not, you know, I'm married. Everything's good. Every good. But just, you know, an artistic date, if you will. So I would go. But at that gala, you know, 
I'm I'm a affable guy, you know, start talking, things I'm working on. Next thing you know, Classical Theater Harlem comes up. And then at galas, there are people who usually have a lot of zeros behind their names in a bank account. And next thing you know, it's like, I like your idea. I like what you're trying to do. Here's a little bit of money. So that happened with a woman named Mary McCormick, who to this day, love that woman. I was at someone else's gala. It was Urban Stages Gala. They invited me to come to the gala because they actually wanted me to talk about arts uptown because they had done a play called Langston in Harlem. And so I was like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And it turned out they asked a number of uptown organizations to do a little summary about their institutions. None of them did that. And I said, look, I'll do it for you guys. So I did. Talked about a half a dozen of them. And then I asked the folks at Urban Stages if they would allow those folks to come to the gala. They had a table for us. So we did that. And, you know, my thought was, wow, what could happen is these folks that are doing this play called Langston in Harlem. They want these other institutions to come in their place to talk about, you know, you know, what's going on uptown and possibly folks will start to know about our institutions uptown. Well, they didn't mention us once at the gala, not once. However, you know, let me let me let me give the full story here, because to be fair, the artistic director wanted me to speak about those six organizations. So I put a little thing together for them. This is back in the early days, right? We didn't have, you know, it wasn't as easy to do iMovie and shit like that. You had to work a lot harder. And Microsoft still was sort of the king at the time, you know? So, uh, you know, I put a little video together. I voiced it. And then I did a little speech at their gala. All right. Mary McCormick comes up to me afterwards and was like, I love your speech. Love what you're talking about, what you're doing. You know, let me know more. You know, literally, it was just a casual conversation over cocktails. Next thing you know, she is reaching out to me, sends me a one sheet. Trust me, when you're filling out, filling out uh, uh, any sort of documents for funding, sometimes they could be 20 pages. All right. They could be they're sometimes really arduous. She uh, gave me a one pager and with a lot of spacing in it. I mean, like it took me 10 minutes to fill it out. And uh, she gave me one hundred thousand dollars. And that hundred thousand dollars allowed me to do our first show since the, uh, uh, the financial crisis. And then one of those 20, probably more like 25 page documents that I filled out for the NEA, uh, for the new play development program, we won. We won that, it was only two theaters that won, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park and Classical Theater of Harlem. And we, uh, that was a $90,000 grant. So literally, same year, I get $100,000 from Mary for a one pager, and then a 25 pager that I sent to NEA we get $90,000. So now I had money to produce a play. And it was, it was a play on budget without question. $190,000 is, you know, a, a one man show for a showcase in most places. You know what I mean? But you know, you're uptown in Harlem. I asked for favors, for space, rehearsal, all types of credits everywhere. But we got it up. And that's when we did, we did Henry V, chose to do Henry V because it's all about, you know, against the odds, right? And you still got to win at the end of the day. The baby still needs to be fed. And then the, the new play from NEA was Seed. And uh, we did that in conjunction with um, uh, Hip Hop Theater Festival. Both of the plays did well. And it was because of that, the momentum started to shift about the success of CTH. Everybody counted us out. And I have to admit, another convergence was social media. So anytime I would do readings... I had a guy that could do graphics really well. So we had these nice looking graphics on, and this was back in the day before the algorithms kicked in. So if I had a thousand friends, all thousand of them saw my post. You know what I mean? That was back in those days, everybody saw everything. Now you kind of got to pay to play, but I still think it's a good, 
deal, even if you do have to pay to play now. Slowly but surely, we continued our reading series. That brought more people in. And in a strange way, people thought we were really alive, you know, still, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars in debt. I'm not being paid, but I'm still, you know, this was a, definitely a full-time job. There's no part of me whatsoever that would use the word sacrifice or anything like that. At the end of the day, this was just integrated into my life. I love doing this. And, and if anything, one of the also fuels is black excellence. You know, I am somebody who, you know, truly believes that given access, we can do, you know, just as good as anybody else. You know, and theater is a strange place. It wasn't set up for us. We were meant to dance and sing. And the idea of being behind that curtain wasn't one that was engaged. Coming to Classical Theater of Harlem, knowing that we could do these plays by Shakespeare, Ibsen, Chekhov, Shaw, you know, John John was there. It was awesome. It, it was amazing because those are the plays that John and I were trained to do in these graduate programs. But when I went out in regionals, the idea of me leading a show or carrying a show, having on my shoulders, that wasn't in the purview of those folks. And in CTH, I felt like I could play Menelaus and, and McBee and without any wink. It didn't have to be set in Africa or anything. You know what I mean? And then the audiences, a lot of people in the audiences looked like me. That meant. And now, you know, when all this stuff is happening, I imagine you guys have seen the, you know, We See You American White Theater. Or I, forgot, I forgot the actual title. Those things. You know, I, I'm glad that those folks put that together. But I got to admit, I'm somebody who who loves to study revolutions and civil rights and all that other stuff. At the end of the day, if you're not going to name the people who are your oppressors, they're going to continue to do the thing over and over again. So, you know, I thought it was a good, you know, idea. We'll see what happens. But I mean, I'm of the mind that I'm just going to continue to do my work. And people who want to fight it from that angle should fight it from that angle. But my advice would be, if you really want to see some change, name people. Name the institutions where you had these issues. And I promise you, you'll see some changes. It was so exciting just hearing you talk right now. And my first memory of um, Classical Theater of Harlem and the thing that excited me and made me write the letter to come and say, hey, I'd love to audition, was sitting and watching their production of Medea and being in an audience that looked like me with people on the stage who looked like me and being excellent at what mm -hmm. they did, right? Just so exciting and thrilling. And um, as I was listening to you talk, the thing that kept coming back to me was you just showing up and taking action and like seeing what happens, just taking the next yeah. action. I'm kind of curious, where did that come from? Where did, where did that bravery or whatever to just go, hey, I'm just going to show up, I'm going to I'm, and take the action and see what happens. Where did that come from? Because I can see that that is something Something that was instilled and has led you on. And I'm just curious where, where the origins of that started for you. So my mother, my mom and dad split when I was five. So I was in, I'm, I'm 50 years old, 75. They split, right? And at that point in time, you know, black women, at least for my mom, she really didn't have many choices. She could go on welfare. That's just not my mom. She could continue to work in social services, um, which, which would have been, it's a government job, if you will. Or she could choose to go in the military. And the idea of a black woman in the military in 1975, there weren't too many of them, right? My mom was a pioneer. And my mom did it because she chose to do that. You know, so at the end of the day, she knew that she was going to have to make, nobody was going to make the decision for her. If she wanted to see something happen, something change, she was going to have to make that thing happen. And so I believe oftentimes, and again, there's no uh, a spreadsheet or data probably that, that points to this, what I'm about to say. But at the end of the day, 
these sort of choices that you make could be in our DNA. You know, my mom is somebody who said this is the way it's going to go. And, you know, as a five-year-old, did I know, could I articulate that this is a woman who has asserted herself and said that this is the way it's going to go and that just got instilled in me? Maybe so. But um, at the end of the day, um, you know, they talk about PTSD, right? And they also talk about the manifestations of things that have happened to black folks for hundreds of years and how we record that in our bodies, right? And I just think something like that is probably, you know, in my body as well, too. You know, when you have a mom who, you know, decides that given the circumstances of the United States in 1975, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, the end of the Vietnam War. At that point in time, I guess um, Gerald Ford was finishing and, you know, Carter was about to become president. I mean, there's a lot. And then she's joining the United States military. You know, it's amazing. And then, you know, we were stationed in several places. So I went from black, black, East New York, a student at Harriet Tubman Head Start to Knob Noster, Missouri, Whiteman Air Force Base, that was the name of the Air Force Base, living in a trailer park where I was the raisin in the oatmeal. And then, how about this? After that, three years of being there, we then get stationed to Germany. Completely different. Learned how to speak German pretty quickly. All that. So, and then we moved to Dias Air Force Base in Texas, the Bible Belt. And then we moved to Dover, where not too many people care as much about the Bible. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, you know, you got this really assertive person and this black woman who did not allow the circumstances of the time to dictate any sort of um, decision that was going to yield something other than positive. You know what I mean? I am who I am today because of the choices my mom made. So if I was going to, you know, if I want to see something change, I'm going to have to, you know, do it myself. And hopefully I can do the kind of thing I hope as a, in a leadership position, if I believe things need to go a certain way, I hope that I could use the thing that you're talking about, the initiative, the, the drive to get a lot of people behind an idea that I believe in. We need to coalesce around that idea, right? We need to be able to have a plan in place so those people who have coalesced around this idea can execute that plan. And then when that plan is executed, wash, rinse, and repeat, right? That's kind of the way we, we like processes to work, but they're hard to do, especially when you have no money. But there are many instances, even outside of, you know, uh, black liberation, where the idea that you must generate that energy for yourself to get X, Y, and Z, it exists. You know, so I'm a believer that these thing, kind of things exist, that, that somehow my mom and, you know, my dad too, somehow this, this lives in us. And, you know, I try everything I can to tell my kids, I was like, they're all musicians and I want them to use their music to be in service of other people. I was like, you know, you're, you're talented, you got that you're healthy, so use what you've got right now to help those who can't help themselves instead of doing it for yourself. You know how to make money, you'll know how to do all those other kinds of things. Look at the world around you, don't surround yourself in Verona walls, and go out there in the world, experience the world, decide on your worldview. Because I guarantee you there are people out there who have a worldview about how things should go and they will use their money and their power behind it to make sure you fall in line. I'm glad that you brought up your children that way. And I love how you say you emulated your mom to her drive and she went after what she wanted. She was a pioneer. The conversations that you're having with your children now about what's going on in the country with I mean, I follow your Instagram and I watched all the, the marches that you went to and the Black Lives Matter. And one of the conversations that you're having with your children and all the outreach you do with Classical Harlem, one of the conversations that you're having now and how it's two-part question, 
And how are we turning that into positive and into art and into something to make some change with? So what I'm doing right now is that I see myself as a scaffold and my kids are going to have to, you know, climb that scaffold and hopefully build something beautiful and do the same exact things for the next people that come along. I think it's really that simple. The conversations are deep, but a lot of them are driven from books now. I'm not a fan of MSNBC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox, none of them. So I try to, you know, find articles, you know, long form articles to have them read and actually do reports on. I had my son just last week do a report on redlining and the, uh, the power and the effects of redlining and how uh, it manifests today. My son's the oldest, he's 13, and then 11 and 9 are my girls. My girls, we try to find musicians who use their music to affect change. So, you know, some of the things are very interesting, like Bob Dylan. You know, and I wanted to try to get to them. The reason why Bob Dylan, I, you're probably like Bob Dylan, but here's why. You know, of course, they're doing Tchaikovsky, you know, Bach, Brahms and stuff like that. They're, they're all three of them are classical musicians. And so whenever they hear people sing, it's so funny. So they'll hear these pop singers sing or the heck they'll even hear the legends sing. And in their mind, they're like, man, they're off. They're flat. They're sharp, you know, and stuff like that. So I, I try to get them to understand. I was like, well, so yes, I, I know that. Technically, you're hearing these things, but why don't we listen to something that completely probably it doesn't sound great to the ear, but there's a message there. And Bob Dylan, I mean, this is my opinion only. I can't stand his singing. Do you guys remember We Are the World? And when he came on, I actually thought I remember back in the day I was, you know, you could hear people's voices be like, oh, that's Mike. Oh, that's Lionel. Oh, that's Stevie. And when he did it, you know what I thought? I thought it was Eddie Murphy doing Buckwheat. I was like, that's Eddie Murphy. I really thought it was Eddie Murphy doing Buckwheat. But then you start to look at the history of this guy and the folk music that he was playing. Even Sam Cooke was like, damn, this white boy is, you know, talking about the movement more than I am. That's what I'm trying to do right now. It is not easy. I mean, my girls, you know how it is. Girls tend to advance a little bit. You know, my son, you know, understandably is very binary in his thinking. Well, if this happened, this makes sense that that happens. One of the things that came up about a year, year and a half ago was like, well, if somebody's here illegally, well, it makes sense to kick them out, right, Dad? And I'm like, oh, okay. The nuance of the idea of immigrants and all that other stuff. I mean, but it is how those people with a certain worldview trap us all because we love just reading the headlines and not the story. But now what's happening is that the story is bullshit too on all of them. When you are predisposed ideologically a certain way, you will find that which will support your ideology. And that right now is what has dominated the conversations now. And so I got to tell my kids, like, look, it's okay to be erudite. It's okay to have knowledge. Learn as much as you possibly can, because there are people out there that want to make sure that you are distracted, that you aren't that knowledgeable about things, because then they want to take advantage of you. You to them are nothing but a number. I don't want that for you. I want you to be mindful in your choices. That's what it comes down to. And it is hard work. It's hard work. And the thing about it is you start to understand why people take the easy route. Oh, just fall in line. Just, just, just do that. Vote for this. Just, just do it. When you start to read stories of civilizations that fall, which were once quite healthy, it usually is because the middle class collapsed. When there's a healthy middle class, usually a society you know, functions pretty well. Everyone sort of has an understanding that there's going to be mega wealthy people and there are, everyone kind of has an understanding, unfortunately, that there's going to be poor people, but that a strong middle class keeps this sort of strange balance. But then when, um, you know, things start to change and the middle class is no longer the ones making the real decisions, we're in trouble.
So I'm trying to just get them mindful. And I do it through the arts. I actually talk about plays that talked about these things. So when we did the Bacchae, for example, last year, you know, the Bacchae, hyper-individualism to the point where, you know, this guy who says, you know, Dionysus comes in, I'm a god. You need to look at me as a god. And if you don't, I'll tear everything down. Now we have these things, you know, everybody can make a little TV show for themselves with these things. And, you know, everybody believes they're special. Everybody believes they're unique. And if you actually take a moment and step back and think about that, it kind of shows you how much we're alike if everybody thinks the same way. It's a meta sort of uh, conversation. But at the end of the day, we've been here before. George Bernard Shaw, Major Barbara, the idea of this woman working for the Salvation Army, trying to save the souls of men. And then she comes to find out that her dad, who's mega wealthy, is like, well, the reason why you got a job is because of me. I fund what you're doing. It's a lot of work, but it's good. It's worthy. And the Bakai is so topical right now. The gods and people, you know, I don't want to get political, but it, the stuff that you do at, at, at Classical is, is very topical. And the outreach that you do to your community and how you make art from what's going on in the world. How do you go about picking the shows yep. for the season? Yeah, so I actually do see what's going on in the world. Bakai. Hyper-individualism. That's what I see happening. That's what we did. The year before that, I think we did Antigone. One side really believes one thing. The other side believes the other thing. And when this happens, bad things happen, right? I think the year before that, we did, I think we did Three Musketeers. All for one, one for all. You can come from all different backgrounds, but you need to create that coalition and a consensus within that coalition, even if you all don't agree, but you have to be single-minded on that which needs to stop, end, or be, you know, disrupted. In Three Musketeers, it was the evil Cardinal Richelieu, but, you know, place in whomever, Koch brothers, whatever, you know what I mean? And then the year before that, which would have been 2016, we did McBee. I think McBee is Shakespeare's most politically significant play. Obviously, we were in politically significant times, and so I thought that that was the appropriate play to do. We also did a play called Fit for a Queen by Betty Shamia, because I actually did think we were going to have a female president. And, you know, Hatshepsut, was a pharaoh. And she, you know, led for 20 some odd years, you know, even putting on the beard to look like a man. And, you know, while she, you know, led during that time. So the answer is, is that I try to look at what's going on in the time because there's something written about it. We've been here before. If we had more knowledge about these kinds of things, in other words, if more arts were in schools so people can see how we responded to what the ruling class was doing in other times, we might be in a better place now. My opinion. Ha. Um, That's why you're here for your opinion. I just want to remind our audience that, you know, please feel free to ask a question. Go ahead, John. All yours. I, so, I mean, always your passion, your ability to organize community. How, how come theater? Why theater? Like, how did that? Because, like, I listened to you talk and I'm like, you could have been a lawyer. You're, you could have been w- with all, all of the passion that you have and your ability to organize community. How, how did theater come into your life? And how, how did that decision take you on this path that you're on now? Yeah, this is going to be funny. So my mom was a journalist in the military. So I was really interested in broadcast journalism. So she did print. I wanted to be in in front of the camera. When I finished undergrad, I was a communications major as an undergrad. And my idea was, and I used to even say this, that I was going to go to New York uh, to take over Bryant Gumbel's job one day. Then March of my senior year at University of Delaware, I met these two brothers that were in the program called the PTTP, Professional Theater Training Program. One was Steve Harris. If you remember Steve Harris, there was a show called The Practice. He was the brother that was on The Practice. 
and another brother named Hassan El Amin. We just happened to be at the same little eatery on campus called The Scrounge. And I lived by the building that they were always in. You know, I'd, you know, every now and again, peep these two brothers, you know, walking out or whatever. And, you know, University of Delaware, weren't too many of us there. So, you know, you, you, you knew when you spotted a couple of the brothers and sisters, you know, you always say, what's up? So I ended up eating with them. And they told me what they were doing there at the University of Delaware, that they were grad students and getting their master's in fine arts and classical theater. You know, I just talked to them about my life, whatever. And then fast forward, they were like, man, you should audition for this program. And I was like, you know, to be a classical actor. And they're like, yeah, man, you'd be great, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I was like, all right, I'll audition for it. You know, I did it on a whim. Again, I'm going to go back to my mom. At every base that we were stationed at, my mom made me participate in something on the base that had to do any during black history month i had to do something so i had to do some sort of dramatic interpretation of poem poetry or prose or you know at the church or or something or what's called the nco club non-commissioned officers club they'd always have celebrations the entire month for black history month and they did the same thing at the officers club but my mom was a non-commissioned officer you know jimmy jones's son is going to do on such and such date so i since the age of nine know the sermon by James Weldon Johnson called The Creation. And if you, uh, you know, if you went to like a black Baptist church, particularly in the South, you know, you probably know this sermon or you had to learn it or pieces of it for Sunday school. So I knew that thing and I still knew it when I was 20 something, two years old. I guess I would have been 22 at the time. And then Hassan and Steve sat down with me. I found the shortest monologue that I could find and, and they helped me with it. And it was uh, Thou Nature Art My Goddess. You know, Edmund from King Lear. I didn't understand a word I was saying. They told me not to stress the pronouns. They told me to, you know, da-da, 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 you know, try to, you know, get this rhythm going and, um, you know, stress this word when you say it. I didn't, again, I didn't know what the hell I was saying. So I just tried to memorize it as they instructed, all right? So I go in for the audition. It's like a three-hour audition. They, you know, they put you through the, the ringer, you know, physical stuff and all that other stuff. I ended up getting in. I got into that program. Completely theater illiterate, by the way. Like, I did a couple plays in high school because, you know, I wasn't playing sports. You know, I knew nothing about theater. So I was highly uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. But I asserted myself. First year was a little rough for me. I was resistant to the rules of being a grad student, number one. Undergrad ain't nothing like being in grad school. That was me. That's all on me. And then I decided to allow these people who were my instructors to instruct me, to coach me. It was okay to not know. And, you know, and then I got to a place where it was like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I got to a place where I was like, oh, okay, this thing that, because a lot of it was my resistance to classical work. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. So therefore I was, I feared it. And, you know, the fear came out in, in a way as if the problem was the classical work or the problem was the, the teacher. What me by any stretch of the imagination. When I let go of that and allowed myself to learn the world opened up for me, literally. It was kind of like what Helen Keller said. When she got water, she got the world. You know what I mean? And that's what it was for me as well. So that's how I got into it. Literally on a whim, got into it. Cultivating a love of language is awesome. Like, you know, we have a board in our apartment where we put vocabulary words on the board and then we, we test our kids to make sure they know the word. They got to put it in a sentence. And then, uh, you know, we switched out those words, you know, every week. To, you know, just to try to get them to, to know that, you know, you master the language, you can master this world. That is amazing. And that program is so interesting because it auditions every three years. Am, am I, am I used to. It used to. It's no longer around. Budget cuts. We can go into another. Oh. Uh, that, save that for another day. But yes, it was like that for 
20 some odd years. Every three years, one class. Which is, I mean, I mean, that must have been such an intense period of having so much attention and focus on you. They called it theater boot camp. It really was. That's that's where I, I was telling John yesterday, that's where I, I wanted to go to Delaware. I ended up going to Rutgers, Mason Gross School of the Arts, but I got, I was accepted and I went to go look or whatever. And I, you know, I don't know why I, I chose Rutgers. There were such wonderful people coming out of Delaware, such incredible artists who had such a mastery of the classics that it blows my mind. It still does to this day. The people I think that have come out of that program are, are some of our finest classical actors. I agree. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> you talk about being a parent and I'm, I'm becoming a parent. Did that enforce anything for you or did it solidify some things that you knew or did it change the things that you wanted to impart in the world like talk about being an artist and then being responsible for other human beings and how that changes your life as an artist so i was lucky because of the program that i went to a lot of it, we had, it was very philosophically oriented, right? We had, you know, we studied Heidegger and Kant and Hegel, you know, um, as part of my graduate program. In those studies, you start to understand that the idea of taking the attention off of yourself to allow yourself to be. So I can incorporate that in my life. At the end of the day, I didn't have my kids, so I have accessories now. You know what I mean? I had my kids because I'm going to impart whatever I can, leave it to them, I'm going to die and they're going to keep going. And, you know, it is as simple for me as that. I know it sounds a little cryptic, but it is. It's that simple. I believe if you're going to have children, the point is to do that, which will allow them to be the best contributing citizen they possibly can be. Trust me, I see all the memes and, and the, the articles out there about, oh, I need time for myself. And, the, and I'm like, well, you know, yeah, but please don't have kids then. Because that's the whole thing is about giving them the time. That's what it is about. And let me tell you, to each his own. Yes, ain't nothing wrong with some personal time. But like even for our vacations, my wife and I, I'm like, bring them. I love having my kids around, you know. And at the end of the day, I want to know how they act when they are, you know, in these places. So when they do go off on their own, I know that we, we ain't going to look like fools. You know, they had some home training, you know. <laughs> You know what I mean, John? Um, we have some questions from, uh, we have uh -oh. very shy people. All right, shy people. I, I will ask the question for them, which is having gone through the 2008 financial crisis within our cultural organization, what advice or motivational thoughts can you provide for people seeking the light at the end of this tunnel right now? From the spring to the summer, we employ about 150 people. That was gone. All right. You just have to make choices. You have to be radically honest with the people with whom you work. So I told my team right away, I was like, look, one of the ways that a company tries not to mortgage itself or save itself is to fire people. That's just how it goes. And I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to keep that from you know happening. At the end of the day, a board of directors, their job is to raise money, right? And at the end of the day, I am going to tell my board, here you guys are. I'm not going to go after the most vulnerable in order to meet, as much as I can, in order to meet some uh, fiduciary goal. What has to happen, you need to give more money. So as a matter of fact, my board, I'm, right now, I'm asking them to double their give to make sure that CTH is around and preserve the, the work for these people. And at the end of the day, again, I think I'm, I'm hope I'm answering this question for whomever asked it. But the idea is this, 
Somebody out there, you heard me say this earlier, decided amongst like-minded people that the world should go a certain way. And you must believe that just because they may have billions or riches in it, that you can also assert that the world needs to go another way. You're just going to have to create a coalition of people to believe that. And you got to know what they're doing to keep you from allowing your voice to be heard. And that's a tough thing to do. It takes real work to do that. But I think you just have to make a plan. You know, if you do run a company right now, you got to make sure that you're going to identify the people that need to be around to keep the company going and be honest with those people if you can't keep them around. The other part of it is, is get out there and be the chief cheerleader for your organization. Get on those phone calls. Get on those Zoom calls. Send people your deck of your orientation deck of your organization, even if they've got some, you know, some rules about, oh, you know, we don't take solicitations, do it anyway. Make them say no to you first. Don't say no to yourself. I like before you keep going back to the saying, which was just keep showing up, which is what you kept doing. You just kept showing up, no matter if you were in the deficit or you kept getting hit down or there was no money. I love that you said that you just keep showing up, which is half the battle right there. Well, um, one of the things that, you know, John Andrew, you might be able to share this with me too. It's like one of the things my mom told me, there's two things my mom told me when I was six years old. She said, you got to work twice as hard and you'll get half as much. And the other thing was, is she said, you're going to get a scholarship to go to school. Those are the two things. And I think she's right about both. I think she's absolutely right. I did get a scholarship. I got a full ride to University of Delaware. And she made sure those grades were tight, you know, all the way through high school. I, I, had, I would come home with straight A's. I kid you not. I would come home with straight A's and my mom would be like, that's not good enough. You know, these were the days when they had numbers. So you'd have a 92, 91, 93, you know, even though she, you, know, you should have had a 99 in that. You should have had a 98, you know. And I 100% believe the idea of working twice is hard to get half as much. But the way I look at it is that I didn't have to go through anything that my mom or my dad or my grandparents went through or anybody before. So they built a certain type of scaffolding, right? And so now it's my turn to do those same kind of things. I just don't have time to, to, to sort of pity, you know, about the, the way the world is going. It's been going this way a long time and either we need to step up or they're going to step on us. I have no desire to be stepped on. I mean, it is interesting, you know, there's a lot of disappointment with the stuff that happened with Brianna Taylor. And the, the thought that I had about it was like, well, it's disappointing. It's, it's angering, but it's not surprising. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And it's going to keep happening. And what rich people don't get is this. What ends up happening is those very people that you can't stand or whatever, they show up at your doorstep. So all those nice little houses you got on the beach, watch what happens when people storm it. It's in the interest of wealthy people to make sure there's a healthy middle class. At the end of the day, a healthy middle class makes your ass more rich. But when you do things like what's happened in the last 10 to 12 years or so, there have been four massive transfers of wealth. So in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, huge transfer of wealth there. Obama extended Bush tax cuts, right? Then the Trump tax cuts and then COVID. And this type of, you know, transfer of wealth completely upends the system because now, you know, the, the but it's out. You just print the goddamn money up and give it to people, your, your friends or whomever. And then they can kind of, you know, gussy up, you know, their, their books, stock market goes well. In other words, I think now, and I do believe it can be led through the arts. We need new founding mothers and fathers. Now we're going to have to create a new social contract and the rich and wealthy truly believe, which they've done in the past, they can build up walls high enough to push back any sort of resistance. Good luck. History is not on their side. 
So it would be really great if some of those smart ones say like, hmm, it actually makes sense to make sure that we have a healthy country. A healthy country is good for my bottom line. Very true. It's very, very true. Talk the founding mothers and fathers, because it does feel like we're in a new civil rights movement right now. Can you speak more on on that? And I'm going to assert that, you know, you're stepping into the race with your organization and what you do and your mission and your ability to organize community. What is the hope? What is the what is the ask for moving forward right now? I believe that foundations, for the most part, 3%, you know, the interest off their endowments and stuff like that is what goes out. They need to increase it. And I imagine, and I'm going to, let me back up here a little bit. So, you know, all, the whole white American theater thing and, and that, that was going, that's been going on. What, what, what's been happening over the years is this. Foundations were going around saying, oh, we believe in diversity, equity, inclusion, all the buzzwords, right? And they would give out, you know, essentially the narrative of what they wanted to fund. And the big institutions who've never cared about diversity, equity, and inclusion do something during Black History Month or something like that. They did whatever, they made whatever gesture they needed to make to be able to get that money. And foundations and so forth and government comply. There you go. Here's the money. And then organizations like mine got the crumbs. Okay. So, I, I mean, I knew that. I knew that's the way that it worked. So that was one of the reasons why it was important to show up to say, hey, there's, there's another, there, we're over here. You know, sometimes you do have to be, uh, you know, squeaky wheel. You got to sing it from the mountaintop sometimes to let people know. That's the way the system has always worked. And I think it's going to continue to work without real change. So here's the thing. When people talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, right? At the end of the day, for me, do I really truly believe no matter how liberal you are, that you're going to displace yourself in the name of diversity, equity, inclusion? Because all the white papers that are done on diversity, equity, inclusion, all of them literally say it's all about uh, leadership. You need to shift your leadership. Make your leadership diverse, black folks in leadership position, women, so on and so forth. And then you'll see the conversation change within your organization. Well, you know, no, nobody really did that. Because I don't believe anybody would displace themselves. Because truthfully, I don't know if I would. I'm going to give up my job for the name of diversity, equity. No, 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 no. Let's just do a play. Let's hire an Asian playwright. Why don't we do a Latino dance or something? You know, we got Women's Week. We got Women's Month. We got, let's just do those things. And it actually makes sense. Let's just be honest. It makes sense. I don't believe for a second that that's going to change. I just don't, you know, just like you said about Brianna. Like, I ain't surprised, you know. What I think could happen that kind of placates everybody is if foundations go ahead and give more than the 3%, right? They can still give their money to these, you know, those so-called white American theaters. They'll get their little piece of change that they've always gotten. But then the next, let's say if it's 3% and they decide to do the six, commit that that next 3% that they goes to organizations like Classical Theater of Harlem. Allow us to be what Vivian, with the Lincoln Center and, and public and Guthrie because that's what happened with them. But when the Guthrie was in financial trouble many, many years ago, Ford Foundation came in. I think they gave them enough money, six years of operating expense or something like that. In other words, they had room to fail. The public got into some financial stuff. I think it was in the late 70s or so. Joe Papp, charismatic leader, got the city behind him. The city gave him like $6 million. And look at the public theater today, right? And then, if I'm not mistaken, the Vivian Beaumont at Lincoln Center, they were talking about that being an ice skating rink. And then Rockefeller. So when you got those kinds of commitments, right? You, you set these people up for success or you set these institutions up for success. So set us up for success in the same way. That's all. Or other institutions. So that next three should be exclusively to those kinds of organizations. And then you want to know what? I think you start to see a little bit. That's where equity comes into play. 
Now Actors' Equity Association will pay attention to the smaller organizations. Allow us to have nine cameras come in and film our stuff so it could be on PBS. You know what I mean? And the other thing, too, is that those other organizations will now treat those organizations with respect. Because at the end of the day, it's about power. So whenever I've worked with a bigger institution, trust me, I had to work my ass off to make sure that Classical Theater of Harlem didn't lose its identity. And it's because of power. Well, you're going to have to do this because we say so. You've got to be very judicious with the battles that you choose. At the end of the day, that's where I think it can start. I hope that made sense. I hope that answered that question. It was beautifully said. I, I have a couple of questions. We have to start to, to wrap up, and okay. I, we could talk here for, for a while. Alana C. has a question. Uh, what would you consider an essential initial reading, viewing of the classics? And has that changed as you've exposed your children to them and seen what they've gotten out of them? The essential viewing, initial reading, viewing of the classics. Okay. I think, first of all, you need to define for yourself what you think a classic is. You know, for me, I started to read Dumas, you know, to my kids. I wanted them, and they're novels, by the way. So, I mean, truthfully, it's because I want Dumas to be in the same sentence as the the Congreves and the Sheridans of the world, right? Uh, Most people don't put Dumas in there, and I think, obviously, because he was a black man. You know, this is the guy who wrote Three Musketeers, Man in the Iron Mask, Count of Monte Cristo, which is one of the baddest novels out there. Now, of course, Shakespeare is in there as well. And plus, they get it at school. I think the upside for them having me as a dad is that I can get a little bit deeper with the classics. So I would start folks out. Is Jimmy Baldwin something you want to read first? Is it poetry you want to do first? So decide what you think that classic is, then move forward with, you know, the plethora of things out there and make it accessible to them. Let me put it in the traditional classics. I would talk to some kids and I would say, okay, you could go up to, uh, you know, somebody that you like, right? And go and kiss them and be like, wow, you kiss good. Or you could be like, you have witchcraft in your lips. You know, you could say to somebody, I really like you a lot. Or you could go up to them and say, Thou nature art my goddess, and to thy law, my services are bound. Or whatever. Get them to sort of love the language a little bit or something. So you got to be artful in the way that you approach these classics. But define what it is for yourself, because I think it expands beyond just the traditional sort of dead white guys, which I think are great plays, by the way, just to let everybody know. (laughs) One more we have for you. How does an actor, an artist, learn to be an administrator? Yeah, so the thing that's really interesting is that if you are an actor, you are an entrepreneur. You got to make sure your body's in shape. You got to make sure your voice is in shape. You got to make sure that you're prepared in a way to make somebody else's job easy. When that casting director brings you in, that casting director wants to be able to go like, uh, let this person be the one makes my job easy. Just like you would take care of your own kid. And no matter what happens, right? Your baby's got to get fed. So that's the way you got to treat your career is that you need to do that which will make sure that how you're presenting yourself is the best that you possibly can. And in doing so, when you're doing all of that kind of stuff, you know, you have to be organized. And all of a sudden, some of those things that one has to do to be an entrepreneur translate into you know, running a small business. So not only did I actually run a small business, uh, you know, I became this actor, I became an actor as well, where I had to be very uh, mindful about preparation for a particular job. And then when I actually got the job doing that, which will hopefully, you know, uh, really serve the story, 
Of course, you want to get a good review if you're playing a, you know, one of those roles. You know that that is part of the game. It's sort of art and commerce a little bit too. You want to make sure you decide. All right, does it make sense for me to get this because I'm going to get this amount of money, which can you know pay rent? Da, da, da. I mean, lots of things come into play. So the thing that's kind of cool about CTH, almost every single person in a leadership position in my company has been in the arts. You know, in some way, there are a couple people that went to school and got an art. I don't mean to dismiss that, you know, got some sort of, you know, degree in arts production or something like that or, or theater production. But like my general manager, he was hoofing it as an actor for a while. Uh, Carl Cofield, actor who then turned director, who's now the associate. I mean, so I actually value people who actually have tried to make a living as an artist to come in on the administrative side. Also to think about that, you know, when I speak to students, I always say, as actors, we are, we have learned how to learn, just learn how to do it. Like we're learning lines, we're learning choreography, we're learning, we're always learning. Don't be afraid of something like that. Learn it, learn it, and then put it into action. Um, I want to tie, I'm sorry, we we could talk for a while, but I I wanted to say that I love hearing you talk your truth and I love your answers to everything. I'm so honored to have had you on the show. I think you've said so much in in so little time and and I hope people will listen and take your advice about what you do. I really admire what you've done. I admire you as an artist. I admire you as an administrator, as a producing artistic director, and I honor you as the way you're raising your children, I think is pretty incredible. So um, with that, I want to say thank you. John, you want to wrap it up as well? You know, I just wanted to say, when I think about my time at CTH, it is held with such pride and there is such a legacy of people and talent and stuff that have come out and like, you you know, Zainab and Ron, like, I mean, there are all of these people who are gone on to do such um, amazing things and you continue to do amazing things there. And I'm so grateful for you and the work that you're doing. And I just want to say thank you for keeping that legacy of black excellence alive and onward, onward, onward. It's, it was great to see you and talk to you and man, I could talk longer, but thank you. Thank you everyone for allowing me to do this. Sin, thank you once again, always being in our corner. You know, John, we need to share the stages again soon, brother. I know, I know. It'll happen. It will happen. Yep. Ty, thank you again. Thank you to the Lord Tell organization as well. Thank you so much. Okay. We'll see you soon. Stay safe. And that's our show. Next week, John Andrew and my interview with transgender actor, writer, and human rights advocate, Maybe Burke, will air on October 16th. We will be discussing the Trans Literacy Project, Safe Word, Red Emma, and The Mad Monk, and more. After that, Daphne Rubin Vega will be joining me to interview recording artist, producer, and theater arts teacher, Telly Leong, airing on October 23rd. And then our interview with Tony Award-winning actor, Tanya Pinkins, will air on October 30th. On November 6th, we will air our conversation with Iranian-American actor, writer, filmmaker, and transgender activist, Puya Moseni. More information on these guests and how to attend one of our recordings online can be found on our website, liveatthelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer yours truly, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogola, GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Alana Canty-Samuel. 
Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.